0: Hello, and welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios, with Emily Peck of Axios.
1: Hello.
0: And very excitingly, back on the show for, what, the 87th time, we can never get enough of him, Ed Lee of the New York Times. Hello. So happy to be here. Welcome back, Ed. We love having you, and we invited you on this show and you said yes and then in order to just make all the stars align we we forced our colleague Sarah Fisher at Axios to (laughs) come up with a big scoop about Warner Brothers Discovery possibly buying Paramount so we're gonna talk about that because you of course are the king of all media insight (laughs) Um, we are going to talk about just the economy broadly because we need to talk about what happened in 2023. It was kind of a big deal. We are going to talk about pedestrian deaths in the United States and why they're rising. If you're going to listen to one Slate Plus segment this year, you should really listen to the Slate Plus segment, which we talk about news organizations and how they make money and whether they can charge open AI and uh, robots to license all of their content. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So Emily yeah it's christmas time more or less it's the festive holiday season which doubles in journalistic circles as the look back look forwards time of year we here at slate money have issues with looking forwards on the grounds that prognosticators are always wrong and who who cares about people's predictions but at least we can take stock and lo- look back at what turns out to have been a pretty good year, would you say?
1: Oh, it has been a good year for the for the money stuff. I mean, if you just look at the S&P 500, it's up as we're talking on Friday 24% for the year, which is like phew.
0: That's a huge risk. Re- Can you imagine if your money just compounded it? I mean, to be fair, to be fair. That basically just like it went down in 2022, it went up in 2023, and now we're like back to where we started at the beginning of 2022 more or less
1: more but that was already at so it went down in 2022 which we discussed i think last year with josh brown it, it fell um just shy of 20 percent in 2022 it was a big bummer everyone was very bummed by that but it, before that was at an all-time high because of the pandemic um so i think yeah it, it's a good return for people people are very excited. If you invested in the big tech stocks, which they're calling the magnificent seven now. So that's um it's Facebook, it's Tesla, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Nvidia, and Meta slash Facebook, those stocks in 2023 rose 75%. And NVIDIA's, this is all on like AI hype. So just from like a market stock market perspective, it's been. An incredible year, just defying expectations.
3: I always find NVIDIA to be sort of the interesting part of that cohort,
0: right? It's the back-end company to all these things, ultimately. Mm -hmm. But, But more broadly, like, stonks in general did what we love them to do, which is go up and to the right. And it wasn't for the same reason that they did that in 2021, which was that, you know, everyone kept on surprising on earnings there didn't seem to be an obvious driver. Like, sure, with NVIDIA, it was obvious their earnings were going up. But, you know, the S&P 500 broadly was not like, oh, my God, their earnings are so strong. It was just more that, like, the thing that we had feared in 2022, which was, like, slumps and recessions and some parade of horribles, just didn't happen the economy turned out to be pretty strong we had four quarters of healthy growth we kept um unemployment at very low rates and you know we we talked last week about like we achieved whether or not we achieved this soft landing or whether we're just like on track for a soft landing but um emily you phoned up larry summers this week and basically said Oi, you were wrong, weren't you? And he was, like, speechless.
1: No, he was definitely not, (laughs) definitely not speechless. Um, But the title of the piece was Everyone Was Wrong About 2023. And, of course, not everyone was wrong.
0: I want to say that I was right. Like, I am very rarely (laughs) right. But I I kind of (laughs) called this one.
1: (laughs) Right. Everyone but Felix was wrong about 2023. Um, Yeah, I called Larry Summers because he famously, in 2022... Um, said in a speech and in an interview with Bloomberg, he was like, if inflation is going to come down, unemployment rate's going to have to rise at least something like two points or even higher. I mean, there's going to be a lot of pain.
0: Sometimes they were saying like 9%. Him and Jason Fairman mm-hmm. pulled out some formulas and was like, you know, it would have to be at 7% for three years or 9% for one year or something like that. And, you know, in fact, it just stayed below 4% the entire time.
3: Just yet more evidence that economists just like to make it up as they go along.
1: Well, I mean, they were looking at history and saying, well, this is how we did it in the 1970s. And in the 1970s, <laughs> we raised rates a lot and unemployment went up a lot. And so that's what's going to happen this time. But like the 1970s isn't the only time the US had inflation. It was just the wrong. It was the wrong time frame to look at.
3: Also, just the, the I'm sorry, but like the economy is just really different from the 1970s. I mean, we live in a global <laughs> yeah. economy, now, right? That's that is the huge factor here that anyone who's harkening back to the 1970s is sort of a way to kind of, you know,
0: evaluate today. It's just I'm sorry. That's just wrong. But this is this is a really this is a really interesting question, right? Because during the sort of Greenspan Benanke era of no matter how much we cut rates, inflation will never go up, the standard narrative was globalization and specifically the rise of China. And it doesn't matter what's happening with interest rates. If Chinese exports are expanding, if China continues to grow, if it keeps on undercutting the world in terms of just making ever, ever cheaper goods, like that's just going to keep inflation contained. And that kind of was the big overarching explanation or one of the big overarching explanations for why inflation was so low. And it did seem to be the case. You know, it's a bit like this argument that like Walmart is good actually because it keeps prices low for normal people. Like globalization is good actually because it keeps prices low for lots of people. And this was always the argument. And then very clearly what happened, partly because of COVID, partly because of the reinvasion of Ukraine, partly because of like domestic politics in the US and US-China tensions, was we started upon... Um, what feels still to this day to be like an inexorable, if slow, deglobalization. And next week we're going to have Henry Farrell on talking much more about US China. But the fact is that globalization only keeps inflation low insofar as we are increasingly globalized from year to year. And it seems obvious to me that certainly in 2023 there was not increasing globalization and probably at the margin there was decreasing globalization. If there's decreasing in globalization, that should be inflationary. And that was a core part of inflation that surprisingly to me didn't happen, or at least I couldn't see it happen.
1: Well, part of the story also – Not to bring up China because you just punted China, but China had a really bad year. Their economy was,
0: (laughs) yeah. And so that should also be that should also be a form of that would be bad if China doing well causes prices to come down in America. Then conversely, China doing badly should cause prices to go up, right?
1: But that's not what happened, though. Prices of goods we're importing from China actually went down. We we ran a chart in markets recently, so I don't know what that says about what you're saying. But it's like. Chinese prices go down either way, it seems like.
0: But I think, no, I I think that's actually what is happening is that in the sort of grand globalization world, where, you know, China is dealing in massive commodities, and there's lots of soy and steel and all of this kind of stuff going in and out of China, um, that form of globalization is decreasing, you know, Australian wine exports to China have gone to zero, that kind of thing.
1: Right, of course, Ed. You knew that, I'm sure. Yeah, the Australian, <laughs> yeah, world. that
0: was right off the you know top of my head there. On all for, the wrap
1: 2023 wrap up lists,
0: um, although that was more of a 2022 thing. Um, <laughs> no, that no, it was because the Chinese, because the Australian Prime Minister at the time was very rude about COVID being Chinese, so it like screw you, or we'll just gonna, like ban all imports. But um, but what happened in 2023 was we saw like on the direct to consumer level something that we haven't seen before. We saw the rise of Shein and Temu and places like that. And that brought down prices for, you know, if I'm just ordering something on the internet, suddenly there's something which is much cheaper than Amazon. And Amazon, which used to be a force bringing prices down, is no longer a force bringing prices down. But we now have a new online app-based way of um, forcing prices down. Well, the internet just tends towards lower
3: prices. That's a big function of the internet, right? Like Amazon sort of set that sort of rule early on. And you're right, Amazon is no longer the cheapest purveyor anymore, but these other places start popping up. And then also like, yes, China, but then if China's gonna have a bad year, you know, had a bad year, they their, their forecast doesn't look great either from what we can tell, at least the information they give us. But then there's India, right? And then there's now parts of, Sub-Saharan Africa that are, you know, their economies are on the rise. So one side will wane, other, other elements will rise.
1: Another big surprise this year was oil. Oil prices really came down. Gas prices really came down. The U.S. Um, just is pumping out lots of this stuff.
3: <laughs> we are the biggest... Pumper of oil, I guess, right? We
1: are the biggest pumper of oil. Yeah. And that's been kind of a surprise after, um, you know, 2022 and the, the Russia invasion of Ukraine drove prices up so much and drove that like spike of inflation. Just when everyone thought inflation was transitory, that happened and everything went kablooey. I think people thought 2023 would see really high oil prices and that didn't happen either. That was kind of a surprise, you know.
3: But that that was what was amazing about this economy right now is consumer spending. That's what you know, soft landing. That looks like the Fed might actually get the soft landing.
0: Um and a lot
3: of it has to do with consumer spending,
0: period. Yeah, that was that was the one big surprise. Every single month the consumer spending figures came out, everyone was like, oh wow. Like, you know, for all of this talk of vibe sessions and consumers being unhappy about the economy, they're not showing that in their spending. They are going out and spending like they are in the middle of the best economy they've ever seen.
3: So what is this unhappiness? I don't get it. I really don't get that. Can someone explain this to me, please?
0: So this is, this is uh, honestly, I really want 2020, 2024 to be the year of no more think pieces about, like, why are people so unhappy about the economy when the economy <laughs> is doing so well? Because I've read that piece roughly 8,000 times at this point, and I've had that conversation roughly 80,000 times And I don't think anyone has ever come up with a satisfactory answer. But there was an interesting hypothesis um, from Dan Davies on Substack last week saying that part of the reason why people are unhappy is because what you used to think of as enjoyably spending money, retail therapy, you know, I'm going out and I'm spending money on something that I love has become transmogrified in this age of subscription services into, oh, shit, that's another monthly ca- um, credit card bill. And you get more and more of personal consumption is in the form of subscriptions of one form or another. So you're spending without realizing you're spending kind of spending. You're spending without realizing that you're spending, and you and there's just a whole bunch of money that just, like, appears on your credit card or disappears from your bank account every month. And it just, you don't feel like you're making that active choice to spend anymore. And it feels like you have less money left left over. You know, if you go to a movie and swipe your credit card for $17, like then you feel like I have made that conscious decision to spend $17. But if you have an, you know, Apple TV plus subscription or whatever it is for $17. It's just kind of this thing that uh, it it doesn't feel like you're, it feels like a much more passive spending, which is harder to control. I like that
3: theory, but it still sounds very theoretical. I want to see some real data. I want to see like where this consumption is happening.
1: I don't buy this at all.
0: Even Dan doesn't entirely buy this theory. He's like, (laughs) no, the main, the main reason why, People think the economy is bad, even when they're spending as though it's good. And even though the economy is objectively good, it's just because people are wrong. I mean, this is (laughs) this is Occam's razor, right? Like if people if people say something that is false, the main reason they are saying something is false is because they're wrong. You know, and I think I feel feel like this very simple explanation for the by obsession thing is not really trotted out enough.
1: People are just wrong. I mean, that's what everyone says, but then they puzzle over why they're wrong. But you're just like, skip it. They're just wrong. They don't know. (laughs) It's over.
3: (laughs) I think Felix is right about that. But the question is still an important question, though, because, yes, they're actually spending. That's the reality. Forget what they're saying out of their mouth. However, 2024 election. Right. That's where it really does matter. Right. The sentiment, even if they're incorrect in linking it to a bad economy, could result in a very different election outcome, right? And who will be present for the next four years.
0: It it could or it could not. Like again, this whole idea that people vote according to whether they think the economy is good or bad, rather than whether they themselves are doing well or badly in the economy is not clear. Like I think when you talk about the vibe session stuff, a lot of it is just opinion polls are saying like how do you feel about the economy? How do you feel Joe Biden is doing on the economy? It's, it's like quasi-political questions. Whereas, you know, if you ask people, you know, how your finances, they actually say, well, no, my finances are actually fine. <laughs> I'm actually doing all right, but, you know, the world sucks, right? The world is going... No, no, it's, it's, this is exactly the same thing that we've seen for years in public schools, which is if you ask people, like, Tell me about the quality of public schools in America. Everyone comes out and says, they're terrible. And then you say, tell me about the quality of the public school where you send your kids. And they go, oh, yeah, that (laughs) one's good.
1: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisitions like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on the best one yet. So be in the know this year, by starting your morning with the best one yet every weekday follow the best one yet on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen ad free right now on wondery plus and for more deep dive and daily business content listen on wondery the destination for business podcasts with shows like the best one yet how i built this business wars and many more wondery means business I want to talk to you, Ed, because you are the great Ed Lee and you know these things better than <laughs> anyone else. I wanted to talk to you about so media consolidation. We need to talk about, this is the big news. Sarah Fisher, the crack media reporter at Axios, who's on sabbatical, I should mention, and was filing this story from Singapore, managed to break this huge news that Warner Brothers Discovery is in serious talks with Paramount about buying Paramount or possibly their pa- Paramount's Um, parent organization which which has the most wonderful name national amusements i've always (laughs) loved that one of the one of my favorite bits of this story which um people haven't really picked up on is that david zaslav who's the ceo of warner brothers discovery um and who everyone has kind of assumed has been interested in paramount for a while He literally just walked in the door of Paramount HQ in Times Square and like went up to Bob Backish's like CEO office and spent like a few hours there and talked about this. Like normally when you are talking about potential mega mergers, these, these, you hear these TikToks about, oh yeah, I invited him over to my house. It, It was all done in conditions of great secrecy. We met in the lawyer's office. There was this kind of wine involved or whatever. No, like this is just like walking in the front door of the HQ and you're like, that is, that is something you don't see very often. So we should
1: just mention Warner Brothers, Discovery. They own Max, HBO, um, a host of the Discovery Channel, a lot of uh, like low-rent cable channels. Um, also CNN.
0: Dr. Pimple Popper.
1: <laughs> yeah. And Paramount is a storied movie, the- uh, movie studio, but also owns um, CBS. So those are the companies. and the, And CBS, Comedy Central, I think. A lot of cable channels, too. MTV, A lot
3: of cable networks no one watches anymore. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that no one watches anymore, but still make money, I think, a little bit. They're they're still, they're, the still EBITDA. Yeah,
3: they're still right? Ebita. Uh, yeah,
0: absolutely, right? the game.
1: <laughs> so this would be a big deal. This would be CNN and CBS getting married if they if they got together.
0: Yeah, and I've seen reports that they were they've been kind of dating for a while that CNN and CBS have like been cooperating on various news reports for for years now
3: yeah no that there's been uh, sort of news collaboration right they've had um even jvs over the years where you're you know sharing services that kind of thing look i first of all I, kudos to sarah it was great piece of breaking news stocks moved on it both stocks moved on it you know if you were reading her early on and you are a big hedgy you know you you may have made some money on that trade either way so kudos to her absolutely I don't think this deal is real in any sense. I don't think it's (laughs) going to happen. I think David Zaslav is kidding himself if he thinks this is going to be, you know. Look, it comes down to Sherry Redstone, who is the controlling owner of National Amusements, which controls Paramount, Viacom, CBS, all those companies. From what I understand in the reporting, you know, and this was, I think, reported in the Journal Zaslav was essentially offering paper, right? Let's do a stock deal, right? I don't he doesn't have any more cash, right? Like, you know, Warner Brothers uh has something like, you know, 40 plus billion dollars in in leverage, yeah. right? Their free cash flow is something like 5 billion, right? That's just barely enough of a ratio to kind of maintain. He's not going to take on more debt to buy, you know, more cash debt to buy another whole another business. It's 10 11, 12 billion dollars. Sherry Redstone does not want paper. She wants dollars, right? So, you know, if it's just negotiating position, fine, right? Maybe they come to a deal. But ultimately, how much more leverage can Warner Brothers take on? I can't see John Malone, who's board, one of the board directors and important backer of Warner Brothers Discovery, agreeing to any kind of a circumstance like that,
0: right? But like, so this is this is where I always like struggle a little bit with M and A deals, especially when Warner Brothers Discovery would be paying in stock, and its stock is pretty cheap right now. It's been going down to the right for a while, and it went down into the right even more after Sarah published that story.
1: (laughs) Um, Not a good sign.
0: Like, if if Sherry Redstone gets a fuck ton of Warner Brothers Discovery stock, she can convert that into cash on this magical. Stock to cash conversion mechanism we have called the stock market. <laughs> like she can just sell the stock,
1: but it'll be falling in price as she's doing that.
0: Yeah, sure. At the margin, if she owns like twenty five percent of Warner Brothers Discovery, then like you know, just dumping it all on the on on the market one day would probably be bad for the price. She might want to do some block trades with Goldman Sachs, but like, but the fact is that she would be buying into a very large media conglomerate at what is objectively a pretty low slash attractive price and she could sell that as quickly as she liked if ever she wanted cash with the expectation that it's probably more likely to go up than go down partly because there are economies of scale and partly just because it's so cheap to begin with so
3: in theory yes but the stock prices of both went down on news of the deal, right? No one likes it. The, the market doesn't think that ultimately that kind of a combination would unlock value, right? Synergies, blah, 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 right? The only thing in favor of Warner Brothers, of Zaslov, is the only thing Sherry wants more than money is the legacy, right? So if she sells to, say, Skydance, right, which is David Ellison's studio that we, you know, my colleague Ben Mullen has reported that as of others they're offering essentially cash, right? That is still preferred to her. The difference, however, is would she want Skydance money or Warner Brothers stock, right? Warner Brothers stock presents a certain legacy element, you know, preservation that she might prefer. But ultimately, I think cash still wins. The only thing better than either of those is Apple money or Netflix money. Both those companies are players in a potential acquisition of Paramount, by the way, you know, according to reporting from Ben Mullen as well. So it's that I think is where it gets really, really interesting.
0: So paramount is, is a major movie studio. As Emily said, Amazon already went out and bought a minor movie studio, MGM, Apple and Netflix are both very big in movies and love to have, you know, prestige movies like Maestro or May, December or whatever. And, And so you can see in principle how they might find it attractive, especially now that that given the share price, it doesn't seem like compared to the size of Apple, it's a rounding error, right? The amount they would would have to pay for it.
3: Well, so here's where it gets even more interesting, right? Um, The weird structure of Paramount ownership, right? Paramount publicly traded is is the controlling shares of Paramount. Are owned by basically Sherry Redstone through National Amusements, which is a private entity. That stake is basically worth a billion dollars. In other words, David Ellison or Warner Brothers Discovery or Apple or Netflix could just buy that billion dollar stake to control the company. Right? So instead of spending 10, 12, 15 billion dollars to own Paramount Outright. You can just buy Sherry's controlling stake for a billion plus and control the company.
0: Can Saslev do
3: that? Anyone can do that. It's just a matter of where Sherry's willing to go.
0: All right, so like in that case, why doesn't David Zaslev walk out of Bob Bagish's office and into Sherry Redstone's office and be like, "I don't actually care about the you know 90 percent of the company." a paramount that's publicly listed and has a bunch of like non-voting shares or shares with very few votes what i care about is your shares with the mega votes can i just buy those like 2x what they're worth that's presumably illegal somehow like you're not uh, is he allowed to do that anyone is allowed to do that so so why isn't he doing that
3: good question in other words (laughs) if he were serious that is the conversation he would be having that is the meeting he would be having right everyone knows how it works everyone knows the structure of this company control it it's the the byproduct of this weird you know dual dual class structure right that viacom paramount cbs have had for years right and it can be exploited right and this is just the way to exploit it that is actually what skydance has actually initially per- pursued wasn't buying out paramount because skydance is this tiny little company it's i just want to pay you a billion plus i can control the company there are disadvantages of that, of course, right? You there's a lot more bureaucracy around that. You only have control over the board, essentially, right? You then appoint board directors. You tell them what to do. They then have to do it, right? Maybe they don't comply, even right? So it's that's not as clean cut a method, ultimately.
1: Oh, well, that's not really running a company, then, right? I mean, I mean, it is running a company, but it is running a company. Yeah. You're not like getting your hands in the. Meat of it. Well
3: you can change who the CEO is, you can change you can do all of that. Just tell them what to do. It's just many more steps to get to where you want to get to.
0: Okay, we are gonna take a break, and then when we come back, we're gonna talk about cars.
3: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
2: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
0: This is a piece that came out in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago by the great Emily Badger. The thesis being that a lot of American pedestrians are dying, unlike pedestrians in other countries. There's been a big up and to the right trend in American pedestrians dying. And specifically, if you're walking down the street in the middle of the day and you get hit by the car, that, that is no more likely than it was a few years ago. On the other hand, if you're walking down the street at night and you get hit by a car, that is significantly more likely than it was a few years ago. And you're going to tell me all of the potential explanations for this, which have been like considered and rejected.
1: Uh, yeah. So it was a great piece um, from Emily Badger. In 2021, 7, more than 7,300 pedestrians died in America. Three in four died at night between sunset and sunrise. This is a, an American phenomenon. It isn't happening in other similar developed nations, which have seen pedestrian deaths go down. And the reasons, I mean, <laughs> Emily says in her reporting, no one really knows what's going on, which is true, but there's a lot that is going on. Um, so American cars have gotten a lot bigger over the past 15 years. I mean, every anyone who doesn't live in New York City, so me, I know this because I drive places in my little Volkswagen and it's like just vehicles are just towering over you, This these like giant Broncos or Jeeps, whatever. Cars are much bigger. So when they hit people, they kill them. They're much more likely to kill them. There's also the number started going up when the iPhone came out, right? So Americans are looking at their phones more. They're much more distracted. And the Times piece has this very interesting point about in other countries, they um, are more. What do they call them? The manual transmissions. You know, so people are using both hands to drive. Um, so they can't look at their phones. That's like this great, like, design flaw.
0: <laughs> I really, I really love this explanation of like the Europeans still have manual transmissions, and that just you don't have your phone free to fiddle around on text people and that's
1: saving lives
0: and that could be a life incredible and also i think yeah you don't see remotely as many people driving around in you know f-150s in luxembourg
1: but i can tell you just from driving around my suburban neighborhood people are looking at their phones all the time because you can see when you're like driving behind someone they'll just start like kind of like swerving around like they're drunk or something and they're not drunk they're just like doing fiddling with their phone or something and just driving all crazy i mean it's 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 a a real thing that happens.
3: Or sometimes I'll be, you know, you'll see cars driving really slowly and I'm like, why is that? And he's just on his phone, right? Kind of a thing. I I like the manual transmission um, idea. We should bring that back here. You know, we should make that a requirement.
1: Don't make me learn that.
3: (laughs) Well, you know, millions of Americans. (laughs) It's funny, whenever I travel through Europe and and rent a car, invariably they tend to be just manual cars. I know how to drive manual. It's how I, I learned to drive. The one time I really, really don't like driving manual is in the UK because everything is backwards. You know, it's on, <laughs> I use my left hand and, you know, I'm on the wrong side. Of the road. <laughs> and I have to do a roundabout. I'm just like, the amount of brain processing you have to do just to kind of manage that is is immense. But aside from that, yeah, I, th- I think that's, it's just it's just a more fun way to drive anyway.
0: But also I think what you're saying about brain processing is much bigger than just manual transmissions. The more that you are thinking about driving and not thinking about something else and concentrating on the road and not concentrating on something else, the less likely you are to run into a human and kill them. And American roads, much more than roads in other countries, have been designed to make it easy to drive without thinking too hard. And that's fundamentally dangerous. Now, this has always been the case. This is not something that is new over the past 15 years. So it doesn't explain the uptick in deaths. But given that we have roads that are easy to drive on, what that means is that as we have entered this era of plentiful distractions and like whopping great big screens that are shining at you in the middle of the night, we wind up Looking at those screens and paying more attention to those screens and thinking about what's on those screens, whether it's a text message or a map or, you know, whatever it is, much more than we ever used to, because those screens never used to exist. And I think a lot of this is just like is various forms of light pollution. I think there were two, two in particular, one is the light coming from the big screen in your car that is shining at you and giving you information and is going into your eyes and is making it harder to see things in the dark that are outside. And the other is the big SUVs that Emily is complaining about have really bright LED lights that are much higher up than they used to be because the car is so much bigger, and they're coming straight into your face. And so that is also forcing your eyes to be in kind of like I am receiving lots of light mode rather than I am in a low light situation here. And between the LED lights that are shining straight into your face and the and the screen light that is shining straight into your face, it's just that much harder to see a pedestrian on the side of the road who's, you know, maybe probably wearing a black coat because for some reason, all coats these days are black.
1: Yeah, I think that sounds right.
0: The other thing, the other reason that um, that sort of was flicked at
3: in the story that I thought was really interesting is just... Lack of infrastructure, right, I think you sort of pointed to this earlier, Felix, just about like how American roads are designed to be easier to drive on. you don't need to sort of process as much populations in the sun belt are arising uh, across u s these areas are just don't have the same infrastructure around um you know lighting you know at night, for example um and or just pedestrian walkways for that matter i mean we're a driving country, we're not really a walking country, and so I think that's a big part of it and so you know, argument for infrastructure bill, et cetera, you know, or more infrastructure spending, period, which is a big part of, you know, what I know Biden's been talking about, but then also Trump when he was um in office. So America needs
0: more of those. But it's actually it's actually really hard in sort of in the in exurban America for infrastructure spending, even when you have it. To significantly increase pedestrian safety, it's just not a priority for most excerpts. If you're in, you know, Frisco, Texas, and you're building a new highway, you're not actually worried about the people who are walking at night because there are so few of them. Um, But, you know, they do exist and they do get hit and they do get killed, partly because the roads just aren't built for them. And If we had more infrastructure spending, like, I just have this feeling we would just wind up building even more roads that aren't built for them. I
1: just listened to this really fantastic episode of um, Slate, What Next, TBD? Because they're rerunning it over the holidays. It's like an encore episode. Um, And it's this interview with an author, Jesse Singer, who talks about how there are no real accidents on American roads because of the way we've designed American roads, sort of like what Felix is saying they're just mo- you're more prone to pedestrian deaths and accidents because even where you're um you have a street where there's lots of stores and things where people are going to want to like stop and buy stuff at different places the street is designed like a highway sort of like what you were just saying and there's like no there aren't very many safe places to even cross or anything like that so lower income people especially are making these calculations like how do I cross the street without dying and it's actually pretty hard part of the reason um, pedestrian deaths are up is because the safety of pedestrians hasn't been focused on by the regulators or the automakers, right? Cars have gotten safer for drivers. They're big tanks. People are driving around in massive tanks, but they haven't optimized the safety for anyone walking around. Um, And there's like really no, it doesn't seem like there's much appetite to do that. All the regulations are focused on like, are the people inside the car going to die, but not the people outside the car. And it's a real class thing, too, because the people walking in these dangerous areas at night on the sides of the roads, as the Times piece mentions, are homeless or they don't have enough money for cars.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they don't have cars. Right. One of the good pieces of pedestrian safety that was mandatorily introduced in the United States a few years ago is that everyone needs rear backup cameras right
1: mm, now. That's a good, um, a good one.
0: <laughs> this this happened like four or five years ago. And the reason it happened was because people were backing out of their driveways and they were running over their toddlers because they couldn't see them. Yeah. What we need now is like front-up cameras rather than backup cameras. I mean, that's where your eyes like, are. Yeah. <laughs> your yeah, eyes like, are supposed you, to do like, that. Up until, up until recently, it was – reasonable to assume that someone driving a car could see directly what was in front of them but now the cars are so big there's a huge blind spot in front of you uh, which is more than big enough to you know hide a toddler it's
1: awful (laughs) just make the car smaller it's good for the it's good for the planet too
3: it's just that's the thing it's just it's the whole the whole overarching thing is just that the car, car industry is just designed around these sort of very single entry point ideas, right? It's just the car and not the landscape, right? Mm-hmm. There just isn't broader thinking about, you know, essentially the infrastructure, right? The, the, the landscape, the environment the system that it's operating in, which is a very American thing, right? You know, we're a nation of individuals. I want what I want. Give me what I want. Don't take things away from me.
1: Yeah, the regulators need to step in, you know. Car companies are going to just do what they do. They're going to make the bigger, profitable things that everyone wants. But then it's up to the regulators to make sure, like, we live in a safe – we live in a society, people. It should be safe for people walking around.
0: And and, uh, stipulated that car design is part of it. There are – there's one other thing that we should mention, which is the way in which – poverty in America has moved to the suburbs and the exurbs in a way that it hasn't in other countries. And as Emily, you were saying, a lot of the pedestrians who get killed are homeless or extremely poor and they can't afford cars and so on and so forth. Um, You know, if you're walking home from the bus stop, like, you know, middle class people who own their cars don't do that. This is a very American phenomenon and to a certain extent Canadian, but you don't, you don't get this in much of Europe and the other and and other rich parts of the world, like in other rich parts of the world, like they still have the lovely manicured middle-class suburbs, like the, the poor suburbs and the poor exurbs are, and the way they're growing quite fast because people are getting priced out of the, of the increasingly expensive cities. That is, I'm sure, part of what's going on here.
1: Yeah, I see people. um, We have like where I live next to the supermarket, there's like like a townhouse community that I think is maybe subsidized housing or something. And it's right next to the supermarket, but the way everything is designed, anyone who wants to go from the housing to the supermarket has to walk on the side of a highway where the speed limit is 45 miles an hour, but everyone goes 55. And every time I drive down, I see someone, not every time, but I often see someone walking to the supermarket and I'm just like, this, this is where, this is the trend. You know, like when I read the New York Times piece or listened to the What Next episode, I was like, these are the people who are dying because they, no one put a, a sidewalk <laughs> that makes it easier for people to get from point A to point B, which are right next to each other, but no one cared to design it in a way that was pedestrian friendly.
0: Can we have a numbers round? Emily is nodding because she has a number. What's, what's your number, Emily?
1: My number is 28.3 million. Okay. That's the number of elf, on a shelf dolls and their pets sold globally <laughs> since 2005. Um, there's a great piece in Bloomberg all about Elf on a Shelf. I don't know. Ed, I'm sure, knows Elf on a Shelf. I don't know. Felix knows. <laughs> but there are these like oh, little familiar. dolls that, that are elves. They come with a book and then parents do these like elaborate things where they, the, the idea is the elf is, you know, watching the kids and reporting back to Santa during the day. They watch you at night.
0: Oh my God, that's so creepy. So the shelf, the shelf is in like the kid's bedroom watching the kid when, when the parents aren't. And the kid is like, I can't misbehave because the elf is watching me on from its perch on the shelf in my bedroom. And it
1: has these, the elf doll has these eyes that are like off to the side and very like mischievous and kind of like creepy slash sneaky slash cute, depending on your point of view, which I guess Felix's point of view is kind of like, anyways, they're super popular. The Bloomberg story gets into all the details. Um, there are all these books that come with them now. Parents do these elaborate schemes where, because the idea is the elf goes away, the elf's there at night. Then he goes back to report to Santa, and then so when the kid comes back during the day from school or something, the elf is in like another spot in the house. Maybe the elf is in the fish tank. Some listeners might in know what I'm talking fish about tank? Mm-hmm. in the fish tank, <laughs> or you know, in a different room in the house, etc.
0: I'm like I'm looking at, at at Ed here, and he's like. Fish
1: Just trust me. It's happened. <laughs> so yeah. Happy Merry Christmas, everyone.
0: Yes. And obviously we have to partake in that great American tradition of watching elf. Oh yes. I love watching that movie.
3: Yeah.
1: So good.
0: Um, my number is completely different. My number is 3.2 million, which is, you know what? Emily, like we both have million numbers that aren't dollars. million is the number of Americans who have left what the First Street Foundation calls climate abandonment areas, which is basically high flood risk neighborhoods in 818,000 census blocks um, between 2000 and 2020. We have been talking for a long time about global warming and the way in which various parts of the coast coastline are going to become uninhabitable because you know sea levels are going to rise and everyone's been talking about you know miami is going to be underwater in 10 years time and all of this kind of stuff and then people keep keep on building oceanfront property in miami and no one ever seems to leave and everyone's like well we think it's going to happen but it, it anecdotally it never happens turns out that if you don't just look at miami and you look at just like the entire coastline of the United States. The population on the coasts has already decreased substantially by, in, in, at least in these areas, to the tune of over three million people in twenty years, leaving places that are prone to flooding. Partly because you can't get insurance, partly because places are already underwater, partly because it's more dangerous. Whatever the reasons are, this big sort of internal migration in the United States has already begun.
1: Wow! Wow! That could be good, right? I mean, you don't want people living in super vulnerable areas. That's what we learned about wildfires, like don't live where there could be a f- big flood or a wildfire, like just get out of there.
3: Correct. But it, it'll change like local economies like drastically. It'll just it, it, there has to be a reform around that. Ed, you want my number? Okay. Best for last. My number is 325 million. Is that dollars? In US dollars, yeah, which is the amount that the uh Los Angeles Dodgers are paying for Japanese pitcher Yoshinobu Yamamoto, which I think I'm saying that correctly. the most ever for a pitcher in in oh.
1: baseball
3: if we're talking about baseball's dying, I don't think so.
0: wait, these this is the same Dodgers that we had an entire like segment talking about the other guy who pitches, but apparently he's not a pitcher Otani What?
1: no, Otani is a pitcher.
3: Otani is a pitcher one of the only you know two-way players what we call two-way players basically for which for which the Dodgers spent 700 million dollars
0: right because well 480 million depending on how you count just listen yeah. to
1: last week's episode trust
3: us <laughs> no that was a great sort of inflation <laughs> right but in in nominal terms right the Dodgers have now spent a billion dollars more than a billion dollars for two players from Japan wow right so what's interesting is that it talks about our sporting culture and you know, media is still driven by U.S. sports, period, right? That's a big part of it. And international trade, right? If you want to think about it that way. <laughs> <laughs> who, who owns the LA Dodgers? Whose money is this? So Guggenheim, Guggenheim is has a an arm that owns the Dodgers, right? Oh my God, this is just a private equity thing? This is so depressing. Basically, right? I mean, it's, it's a consortium. It's not just Guggenheim alone. It's a bunch of people. Mark Walter is the head of this group. And like most most sporting outfits, it's usually like a consortium. People every once in a while you'll have like like a Mark Cuban, right? Who owns Stevie Cohen. Stevie Cohen, exactly. But Mark
0: Cuban just sold,
3: right? He is selling for a lot more money. I mean he I think spent something like a few hundred million um for the Mavericks and then now selling it for over three billion his stake anyway.
1: That's a good return.
3: Oh yeah, he hadn't made a nice return on that. Um he also did spend a lot of money to improve that franchise you know just not just spending for players but the whole infrastructure um you know the stadium itself and everything so
0: okay so we're gonna have a slate plus segment on the news industry and whether it can make money from open ai and and it's ilk but Otherwise, for those of you who aren't Slate Plus members, thanks so much for being with us this year. Thanks so much for all of your amazing emails that you send in to slatemoney at slate.com. We love them. And I hope you have a wonderful Christmas Day if you're a Christmas Day kind of person. Thank you especially to Jared Downing, who's producing this show on what is technically a Slate holiday, because as Emily will attest, december 22nd is apparently a holiday this year
1: it is write in and tell me you agree with me
0: let let us know on slate money at slate.com whether december 22 is a holiday and if so why is it like christmas eve observed it's or christmas
1: eve observed come
0: on <laughs> anyway many thanks to jared for working on christmas eve observed many thanks to ed for working on christmas eve observed ed you're fantastic and yeah we'll be back on saturday with more slate money